Hello, and welcome to the Classes Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, as always, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And, uh, Victor, this is the first time that you and I have had a chance to talk since Donald Trump won the presidential election. You were out on the National Review cruise, and I should thank Charlie Cook from National Review, who sat in for me on this show with you the last time when you were on the boat. The uh, conversation that you and Charlie had largely focused on what the world looks like now for the never Trump contingent. I want today to take sort of a slightly broader view of it. And let me ask you to start maybe via anecdote. Uh, What I mean by that is we've seen in the aftermath of this election the entire sort of coastal media establishment discovering that the the rest of the country exists. And they are now engaged in what is sometimes a a pretty condescending cultural anthropology of trying to figure out the rest of the nation. So so why don't you help them out a little bit, Victor? What's been the reaction to Trump and the Trump victory out in your neck of the woods in the Central Valley of California? Well, I think obviously that the pro-Trump people are happy, but the never-Trump people have an odd attitude it's sort of like well i had to vote against him but i'm really curious to see if he's going to you know frack or he's going to change the tax code or he's going to close the border so i think everybody thought whatever their political persuasion was that things couldn't go on as they were um and then when you talk to inform people i don't mean that condescendingly but i mean people who follow politics it's like what do the democrats do i mean they they established the idea that Obama and Hillary, to a lesser extent, didn't have to talk to the press, or if they did, it was obsequiously conducted, or they had all these executive orders where they circumvented the Congress, or they got rid of the filibuster, the nuclear option. Whatever it was, they sort of made – they served up a turkey for Donald Trump. So he really – you can't say to him, you have to press conferences, you have to defer to the Washington Press Corps, given WikiLeaks as well, and – or you can't do an exec- executive order on amnesty or the wall or whatever. Or you, you know, you need to you need to have 60 votes to approve your cabinet. That, so it's very ironic. The Democratic Party is not only shrunk to a municipal coastal party, but it established precedents during Obama that it was so sure would apply to Hillary's next eight years that it had the unintentional effect consequence of empowering Trump even more. And people are really kind of giddy that. At least something's going to get done. What happened, in your judgment, to the to the Democrats and to the elite classes, to the extent that you want to differentiate between those two? Yeah. Because it's not just that they lost. It's no. that they were so thoroughly on the back foot. I mean they really yeah. seem to have a fundamental misconception of where the country is at. Well, there's two issues. One is Donald Trump and then one is everybody else that won and – Trump was a better candidate than Hillary Clinton. She was mired in scandal. And even though he had no Republican establishment, he had no celebrity endorsements, ground game. He was outspent almost two and a half to one, very few ads in comparison to Hillary. And despite these IEDs that he that blew up on him, like the Venezuelan beauty queen and the Access Hollywood tape, he beat her. And that's astounding. And he beat her in these so-called blue wall states. So that was, that's one issue. But what's broader is forget Trump a minute, and they won the you know 31 governorships. They've got 68 of the 99 legislatures. They've got a thousand federal appointments. 
uh, excuse me, 3,000 federal appointments. The Supreme Court's going to be 7-2. So that's a different phenomenon. And Trump energized that by these enormous turnout. But that's a different. And what caused that? I think it was, one, Obama's flawed uh, electoral – and we talked about this calculus that minority uh, voters, i.e., would come out in block and vote for a 68-year-old white middle-aged multimillionaire in the same degree they'd voted for him, and that didn't happen. They were off 10 20 percent in some cases. And then second, that identity – drill bill, that woodpecker, da-da-da-da-da, identity, lesbian, gay, white, black, Latino, whatever it is, turned off a lot of people, and they went to Trump, the so-called Reagan Democrats or the working class or whatever we call them. And so I think now they're looking at this electoral red county map, and they're saying to themselves, wow, we're just a municipal party on the coast, and what usually happens is they've learned nothing, they've forgotten nothing, so they're doubling down, so... They have these geriatric Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, Bernie Sanders, the Clintons, and then they've got this unhinged Keith Ellison, who's, you know, he's got anti-Semitic tendencies or explicit uh, statements, and he's got a past that is it makes you know Jeff Sessions look like a choir boy. So I, I think they're in they're in big trouble at least for the next four years. <laughs> With all these Republican victories across the board, you press the point with us often on this show about the importance of the, the tragic sensibility, about the pitfalls that come with failing to understand our flawed nature and our inherent shortcomings. Um, a lot of people on the right criticized Obama supporters for the sort of messianic terms in which they regarded the president. Do do Trump supporters need to be on guard against setting their hopes too high or, or is it your sense that a lot of them are going into this thinking that it's a roll of the dice? I think uh, – I don't know anybody who thinks that Trump is a messiah uh, <laughs> even. But I think you, you're right. They have to be careful because even after 2005 when Bush had been reelected and he thought he was going to do Social Security and he was going to do private savings accounts and the Iraq and Katrina and all of that destroyed his second term and obama boy within a year he was dead in the water as far as initiatives he didn't have anything other than obamacare that blew him up so yeah i think that they've got to be very careful so i think what's going to happen though unlike obama and unlike bush they are in a better legislative position partly as i said because the democrats got rid of the filibuster and they've established the precedent of executive orders and the press is entirely discredited in a way that it wasn't so much in 2004 2008 12 so i think in the first 100 200 days we're going to see things that are kind of unimaginable i suppose they're going to radically refashion the tax code regulations corporate tax rate ex probably eliminate the estate tax uh, they'll probably do Keystone. They'll probably frack on federal lands again, horizontal drilling. They'll probably be exporting coal from Appalachia to China and India, probably liquefied natural gas out of Louisiana for, to Europe, beef up the defense budget, uh, build the wall. They'll probably deport one to two million uh, illegal aliens that have criminal records, maybe some that have never worked, and then they'll probably take a deep breath and say – the guys that have been here five years with no criminal record and are employed, we're just going to not worry about it for a while. So I think all that's doable, and it's doable in 90 days. I, what I worry about a little bit is that 
although I believe in supply side economics, we've got a $500 billion deficit. So all of these things are predicated on tax cuts and building up the military like Reagan did. And until that kicks in, the four or 5% GDP, we're going to really explode the debt unless he makes the kind of uh, budget cuts on the federal budget that it's really going to be painful. Now, I hope he does, but I'm kind of worried about what's going to happen. I think we could easily get back. We forgot how we got away from uh, trillion-dollar debts to $500 billion deficit, and that was because of sequestration and destroying the defense budget but and raising taxes on the uh, top brackets. Well, to that point, Victor, do you worry at all? I mean it's, it's very clear that Donald Trump has modified sort of the existing Republican coalition – with this, I mean, we we've all heard the um, the stereotype now is this sort of white working class populist energy. One of the secrets to that, I mean, it seems like he he broke from conventional Republican orthodoxy on trade, at least elite Republican orthodoxy on immigration. Those two have gotten a lot of ink in the press. The one that has gotten, I think, a little less attention is that he's also basically broken from the Republican orthodoxy on entitlements on an entitlement reform. Yes. Which seems like a key to this coalition, but to the point that you just made, do you do you have any anxiety about what that means for the country going ahead if that problem remains unsolved? Well, he's surely not going to do what George Bush did in 2005 yeah. and, and bring out an innovative and uh, program which was right on the eve of the meltdown on Wall Street in 2008. So he's not going to do that because he'll be demagogued to death and he's not going to have commercials with as they did with Paul Ryan and Romney throwing uh, older people over the cliff. So I think his attitude is, I'm going to leave the entitlements, i.e. Medicare, Social Security alone. And then when they start to implode, and that's going to be sooner than later, we'll get a bipartisan commission or something. But I'm not going to take the lead in doing that because any Republican that does is going to be destroyed uh, politically. Right. It's just, just the way it is. We've we've been talking primarily about domestic policy. Do you, do you feel like you have a sense of what foreign policy is going to look like in this administration? As of the day that we're taping, we know that Mike Flynn is going to be the national security advisor. Your Hoover colleague, Jim Mattis, is going to be the secretary of defense. We still don't know as of today who the secretary of state will be. Um, they, you know, they say personnel is policy, but of course Trump himself is also the top of the pyramid when it comes to personnel. So what heartens you potentially? What worries you when it comes to what foreign policy may look like in a Trump administration? Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I've talked to a few people in the transition um, team. I think it's what we talked about earlier, Troy. It's Jacksonian. So he's going to go to Putin and he's going to say, you know what? Um, it makes no sense for you to be on the side of Iran. You've got enough nuclear powers on your periphery, North Korea, Pakistan, China, uh, etc. Why are you doing this when we have mutual affinities? We both are you know, westernized countries and we don't like radical Islam. And I think he's going to wink and nod at Putin's critique of western decadence and his human rights and then cut a deal which says we work together to get rid of ISIS and then he's going to try to jawbone him away from Iran so he can get rid of that Iran deal. I don't mean abrogate it immediately, but you don't really have to do much because they violate it every day. So you just say the next violation, it's over with, and they'll they'll violate it, don't worry. And then I suppose he's going to reel up the military and reply in a punitive fashion that that sort of means that we're not going to get on the ground and nation build or or try to be peacekeepers. 
sort of like Bill Clinton did in the Balkans when he bombed Milosevic, or Reagan did when he bombed Gaddafi, but not what Bush did. And of course, people are forgetting that Bush went in with ground troops in Iraq because of no-fly zones, the oil for food, bombing Desert Fox under had not worked, and uh, Clinton was ready to put some troops on, and still had had to put troops on the ground after the bombing removed Milosevic. So that neocon nation building is kind of caricatured. It was a reaction to the limitations of punitive Jacksonianism. But now we're going to go back to the, that, and at least in the short term, it'll probably be less controversial. But long term, um, we'll see. And then finally, Obama's a lame duck president. We've got 60 days Trump is untried, so if you're Russia or you're China or you're Iran or you're North Korea, if you're going to try something stupid, it would be a good time in the next 60 days. Because I don't, I think, I think everybody would agree Obama's not going to do anything. He'd rather leave the problem for Trump, or ideologically, politically, he's worried about his legacy, but he's just not up to it if he's challenged, and he's leaving. Uh, he's leaving a mess abroad because the bill's coming due in all these regions. It, they really are. To that point, uh, of the names that have been floated, of which there are like almost half a dozen for the Secretary of State position, we've heard Mitt Romney, which has been very public, of course, Rudy Giuliani, Bob Corker, John Bolton. There's a couple more. Uh, anybody stand out to you as a really strong pick? Anybody stand out to you as somebody who should, whose name should be taken off the table? What's your reaction? No, I- I would prefer that Giuliani obviously should be Homeland Security. That's what he knows best. That's what he's best at. He'd be really, that's very important given the, the dismal people that served under the Obama administration. Janet Napolitano was a disaster. Remember, she, she suggested that returning vets were likely terrorists. So I think that would be a good appointment and not Secretary of State. I think I like Mitt Romney, but I think that the first chant, the first crisis and dip in popularity that the, the New York Times and Washington Post would go to people like Mitt Romney and ask for off-the-record quotes. So because of the animosity between the two, it's just not going to be – it's more than mm. bringing in a rival, I think. There's some bad blood. So that leaves, I think, of the top four, Petraeus or Bolton, both of whom I think would be good. John Bolton, I think, is not – He's people are suspicious because he supported the Iraq war, but I think he's more – to tell you the truth, a Jacksonian and a punitivist than he is a uh, neocon. So he might be a good – I think he would be probably one of the best picks. I think Trump has a an affinity for generals. There's already two now in the cabinet, but I think he feels that Petraeus in comparison to Romney – I mean, excuse me, to Hillary Clinton got a bad rap, and he seems to be interested in help, helping Petraeus get back into the – into the mainstream again after his problems. So I think it'll either I think it would be good to either have Bolton or Petraeus, either one. The final thing I'll ask you, it does seem like when you look at 2016, whatever political shift we may have seen was downstream from a cultural one. And and I wonder if you if you got a shot at sort of the first draft of the history here, if we really pull back, I mean, what do you think in the long run people will say happened in 2016? How will they characterize this election? Yeah, I think it was really simple. I think they got tired of elite people in journalism and academia and in the media and in, I'm in a foundation, so in foundations and think tanks in Hollywood and the arts, talking to them 
in a condescending manner about their supposed isms and ologies or their incorrect views by people who are not subject to the ramifications of their own ideologies and politics. So they said, you know, you have to be living in integrated neighborhoods and support public schools. And the people who told them that were living in gated communities and sending their kids to private school. Or Jeb Bush says, you know, you can't be so intolerant. You've got to be illegal immigration is an act of love. And you think, where do you live? Where do your children go to school? When do you ever get in a car and drive through Bakersfield? Or they got tired of saying on the Republican side, you know, free market economics is so good and creative destruction and we destroy. And then people said, well, when you write stuff like that, is your column ever outsourced to India? Do you wake up in the morning and three people from Vietnam have each taken a third of your writing at a cheaper price? So I think that was a lot of it. We could go on forever. And it's sort of like, you know, here in California, we're going to take your irrigation water and put it out there. Uh, in the ocean because you don't need it. But we're not going to do it for our Hetch Hetchy water, the things that we've talked about. So it was an anger at coastal elites. And then there was one other tweak to it, and that was, unfortunately for them, we had the Colin Powell trove, we had the WikiLeaks trove, we had the um, Blumenthal trove. And the, the net result, the aggregate out of that message was that these people are not very competent and they're not very nice. And they're kind of racist. They they pander to minorities, and yet they they talk about taco bowls and needy Latinos and Catholic, medieval Catholics, and they make fun of the first names of African American uh, teenagers. And so they're kind of a smug pajama boy elite, and people are sick of them. They don't want to be lectured by them, and they want them to suffer a little bit of the same things they've advocated for other people. And political correctness, I think, really took a hit, and. Uh, We've been told demography is destiny, but I don't think people realize that a lot of minority uh, people do not necessarily vote in block. And Trump seems to have got a higher percentage than did Romney of Latino and black voters. A lot of people are intermarried. They're one-third this, one-eighth this. And the idea that they were going to be perpetual stereotype minorities and were going to join a party of pajama boys um, – when I talk to Hispanic guys that are working class people and they they don't like that white coastal silicon talking down to them. They vote for them in the past because of economic issues and immigration and stuff like that. But it wasn't – there's not a great affinity for the democratic base for the people who lead, lead them because they're not Harry Truman uh, populist, you know, and um, they're elitist. And their their main issues are gender, gender bathrooms and, uh, you know, boutique environmentalism. They're not carrier air conditioner. So the Democratic Party has got a big problem, and I don't know how how quickly they're going to remedy it because it, it's still in control of people who live from Washington, La Jolla, and from Boston to uh, Richmond. A theme that I'm sure that we're going to be talking about for – a while. That's all the time that we have for today. Come by again next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can go to hoover.org to read all of Victor's commentary. We will be back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.